0: you a better way. Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December 1st, 2014, this is episode 1474 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a listener feedback show, but I've got an interesting one for you today, because I've got some things going on that aren't... Typical listener feedback. Uh, one, I got a brief interview about 15 minutes long with Jesse Techmeyer of uh, Perma Ethos and what we're looking for in interns for 2015 and how you can apply for that if you want to do that. And some of the cool things going on at the Perma Ethos farm. Uh, I have a special message for you on sanity and goodwill for the holidays. That'll be our lead segment. I'm going to talk to you about Ferguson, Missouri. And I can finally talk intelligently about it because we have enough information released from the grand jury decision to actually know sort of most likely what happened instead of hyperbole and guessing and dichotomy and picking one side or the other over emotion. And uh, actually I want to talk today about what law enforcement is going to have to do to prevent more Fergusons, even though I don't believe the officer did anything wrong in the way that he handled the situation. I do believe he was defending his life. But we have to ask the question, why don't people believe that? And what role does law enforcement play on the fact that even when they're right, they're wrong, and how bad it can go when people start feeling that way? I'm gonna, So I'm going to talk about that because I haven't been able to. And I haven't been able to because I refuse to speak on issues that are so hot button without the information necessary to make an informed opinion. So now I have that. I also want to talk to you guys today about the President's executive order on immigration And a take of it that, well, finally one person emailed me last week and said it, so now I can say it. I was waiting for at least one person to say it. I'll tell you my thoughts on that. I'm going to talk to you about the European banking crisis uh, today and what's going on there and why it's actually probably in the short term good news for the U.S. economy, Uh, some recent developments that have occurred over there, and how it may be something so monumentous, but nobody sees it for what it is. And I've got other stuff from you guys for Feedback. Remember, if you want to hear from me on your thought, your question, your comment, your concern, your news story, your video, the formula is send an email to thesurvivalpodcast.com. And I've always said, do question for Jack, comment for Jack, things like that. I'll still be looking for that. But here's what I want you to do. From now on, just put TSPC in your subject. TSPC and then whatever subject you want. And it'll make it a lot more likely to all find it when I search for it in the spam folder. Uh, for jack pulls up a lot of stuff. So if you just put TSPC in the subject line, I don't care for the beginning or the end, it doesn't matter, for The Survival Podcast, I will definitely find your email. I'm going to continue to mention the 4Jack thing for a while as we transition over to the new TSPC protocol for emails. Again, the email address is jack@thesurvivalpodcast.com. Best way to get through my email screening, make your point or ask your question or whatever it is, in one sentence, and then give me details. It'll be a lot more likely to get on the air. Frankly, it'll be a lot more likely to get fully read. It's just a time constraint, guys. All right, before I get into all this good stuff today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor today, number one at KnifeKits.com. Hey, it's the holiday season. How about this? You guys with kids, get the kid a knife kit, and then dad, you're on the hook, or mom, you're on the hook to help him build the knife. That would be really cool. Great way to develop skills. KnifeKits.com is thought of very, very well on all the blade forums all over the Internet. They're a great, loyal sponsor. have been with us for a long time. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Do you know, Backwoods Home has a distinction. They are the only sponsor that I can say this about. I've been with them longer than they've been with me. Think about what that means, right? What I mean by that is I've been their customer Longer than they 've been my sponsor, how long have I been their sponsor uh, there 's their customer uh, since one thousand nine hundred and ninety four that 's twenty years a twenty year loyal subscriber. So when they approached me about working with me, you bet I was interested. Check them out and you 'll see why backwoods home magazine at backwoods dot com Remember knife kits backwoods Home and many of our other sponsors. Give you guys a discount in the Member Support Brigade. I did the math; it's over sixty vendors now, sixty different companies that you can get discounts from in the Member Support Brigade. If you become a member, it's fifty dollars a year, five bucks a month, however you want to pay for it. If you have fifty dollars a year, it comes out to around eighteen point three cents in episode. So if you think the show's worth a couple dimes, consider joining. You get all your money back if you're buying stuff in this cool world anyway. And I got some new cool stuff coming to the MSB. More on that in a bit. Anyway, so let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1474. I have three headlines for you in the TSP Wiki from Alex Shrug today. The first modern patent, Plato and the ethics of translation, commerce wars and the sinking of the Lusitania. You want to know how the Lusitania ties into something that happened in 1474? You have to read it for yourself, because I shall read to you today, The First Modern Patent. Again, these history segments are at tspwiki.com, The Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and Sustainability Wiki, with a history flair thrown in by our favorite contributor, Alex Strug. The First Modern Patent, The Patent Act of Venice, was the first attempt to register and protect their inventions. This is more significant than it may seem at first. The Republic of Venice covers a much larger region than the city located in modern-day Italy. It includes the coast of Dalmatia, which is part of Croatia. They also rule over Corfu, Cyprus, parts of the Ukraine, and Russia. This doesn't include all the countries which they have trading agreements with. They also have a powerful, if diminishing, navy to enforce their regulations. At this time, Venice sets the standard for the gold ducat, meaning Duke's coin, to the point where the single word ducat now means the coin from Venice. My takes by Alex Shrugged. Enforceable patents are an important advance. It draws investment money to your country and gets you the smartest citizens thinking more efficient and economic ways to do things. Most importantly, it allows the products to get to the market before they are copied. Eventually, a government wants a product copied, thus allowing a good product to propagate. A good example are generic drugs. That is why the patent time is shorter than a copyright, but a business must make their fortune. The problem with patents occurred in 1962 in the UK and 1972 in the USA when the Patent Office allowed software patents. As part owner of a software patent myself, I see the value of such patents, but the patent office cannot discern between unique software method and vague ideas like podcasting. This has caused the phenomenon of patent trolls who wait for people like Adam Carolla to make enough money to be worth suing. A major pitfall of software patents is the patent office itself. I see no way to fix a patent office, so I'm convinced software patents should be disallowed. So should you be able to patent software... You know, here's how I feel about a lot of things with with the patent thing as a whole. I think you should be able to trademark brands. I think you should be able to trademark processes, right? I think you should be able to trademark company names. I think patents have outlived their usefulness, personally. And I think that we would go a lot further, a lot faster as a society if we did away with them. Now, here's what I do think should be illegal. You take my software. Let's say I make Jack's Software. And it it uh, I don't know. it is a a software package that allows nurseries to do really cool inventory uh, modeling on their trees and, and what have you. If you use my processes and you use all the things so that basically you just clone my software, it should it should not be legal for you to go out and market it as the exact same thing that Jack makes. That I think you should have to bring your own marketing to it. You shouldn't be able to just snipe my customers, right? And if you go out and publicly say this is the same as what Jack has, well, pff, I, I, I see that as being a bigger problem than just you being able to use my code, do your own thing with it, modify it, and create your own market. I think that would be a much better uh, fix. Now, here's what I actually think. I think that software is the place where patents are needed the least because if you want to, if you want to, you can design software where if somebody copies it, it doesn't work right. Okay? And I think that alone would just make it easier for people to maybe grab pieces of code, modify it, and build new things than to just try cloning it and cloning it and cloning it. Uh, I do think that a lot of people are misinformed about patents, though, and how long they last. Most design patents in the United States. Uh, don't last anywhere near as long as people think they do. Design patents are 15 years, utility patents are 20 years, and then there's some other patents out there that have lengths of time that are quite similar, like plat- plant patents, plants on, uh, patents on plants, um, and, and some other different patents that are available. But the primary two are utility and design. And uh, the other problem Alex brought up with the software stuff is, the people there can't understand what the code is and what the code means and what actually is an infringement of violation. They're not qualified to do it, just like our Congress isn't qualified to, oh, I don't know, regulate the Internet, right? See, my question to a congressman before they would, would, uh, would vote on anything like net neutrality or something like that would be, tell me what a MAC address is and, IP, and what an IP address is and how the two are different. Now, a lot of you out there are going, that's pretty basic, Jack. Yeah, but if they don't know the answer to that, should they really be voting on the Internet? And If a patent office clerk determines that you have infringed with no knowledge of something that basic when they're looking at software code, are they really qualified to make that determination? I think basically what's happening is the human species, on an intellectual level, I know this is hard to believe because there's so much stupidity out there, but on an intellectual level, those at high functioning are evolving past prior protocols and procedures for how we run a society. That we're going to a place now where it's not that people just want to clone what you're doing, they want to make it better. That's where we should be headed. That's... Real progress, not progressiveness. Anyway, with that, let us get into um, some cool stuff that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, Let's start now with the prepper scenario. So I have a prepper scenario for you today that's an interesting one, and it'll tie into a later segment in the show. But let's talk about last Monday's prepper scenario. Uh, Quite a few of you guys did participate in the comments section on this one. It said, look at Buffalo, New York and the surrounding areas right now. First, they were hit with about 8 feet of snow. Now as the melt comes, flooding is probable. During this event, no help could be sent in. Frankly, the melt might be a disaster onto itself, but it's also a blessing. With eight feet of snow, there really isn't many places to push it out of the way to. In such an event, you will likely be stuck inside your home for at least a week. If the power goes out, cold weather is a big problem. Regardless of where you live, how would you personally prepare for such an event? Um, I have never dealt with an eight-foot snowfall in my life. I have dealt with one that was about six feet. It was such a big event that I was put out the window as a young man to shovel a path around to the door because we had a door that opened to the outside and we couldn't get out of the house. So I had to shovel us out to get out of the house because we had a drift that blew up against the door, even though there was really kind of an overhang and that usually wasn't a problem. The way the snow came in, it drifted up against the door and we couldn't open the door. Uh, so first thing might be to make sure your door is open to the in way. That's like a little design thing, and you can see why you'd want a door to open out. Uh, it gives you when you open the door, it gives you more room inside the house if the door is not in the way. So the opening doors out makes a lot of sense in some design considerations. But in heavy snow areas, if it's a door that could become snowed in, that's just one little design thing. There's a lot to this. I'm not going to go all the way into it like I usually do with what I would do because I think this is actually going to become an ev- uh, a show that we'll do, uh, prepping for winter in extreme northern environments like Buffalo, New York, where this type of thing happens. But, you know, the basics are all there, but I said you had to go beyond the basics. Some of the things you really need to think about is the fact that you may very well have a lot loss of income because you may not be able to go to work. And a lot of people have jobs where, that's fine, you can't get in. We understand that. We can't open the doors anyway because we're snowed out too, but you don't get paid. Or if you don't have the holiday pay, or then you have to take your vacation time for this and then you're stuck on a vacation while you're snowed in your house. That's a, The financial consideration is there. And it, it, it's probably a good idea for people as they begin to develop their financial stability to start compartmentalizing their wealth. And not only do you have a 90-day emergency fund, maybe you have like a can't work for 14 days fund, right? And that could all be in one bank account somewhere or something like that. But the, the, the concept of – it just well, this little bolt on. So now that I've built up my 90-day emergency fund, I'm going to build up my can't work for a couple weeks fund. So that if I have to draw from that, I'm not drawing down my 90-day emergency fund. Now, obviously, you get to a 30-day emergency fund first and a 60-day emergency fund second. And then 90 days, I think you're pretty solid with that. You have all your other things you're, you're investing in. But that's like something people wouldn't really think of, but it can hit you. And And that 90-day emergency fund is designed to get you through true long-term emergencies. You know, three months looking for a new job. It's not really the best place to draw from if you don't have to. For short-term financial needs, well, that's what a savings account is for. Yeah, well, maybe whatever you do in savings, you should add a little bit to it, a little bolt-on. Just another thought, alternative heating methods and things like that, we'll save for a show. Today's Prepper scenario, totally different one. Certainly something you might have to deal with, because people have had to deal with it very recently. Riots have erupted in your area, similar to the Ferguson riots. The cause is not really relevant, so we'll leave it out. So, honestly, if there's riots in your area, why they're occurring is not anywhere near as important as the fact that they are occurring. Okay, The key is that these riots are not likely to spread to your house and your neighborhood. But you and your spouse, if you have a spouse, work near the area where they're occurring. Additionally, you have some concern over the location of your children's school, assuming you have kids. If you don't, you can leave the kids part out. What are your procedures and protocols for travel, when to stay home, and how to deal with the potential spread of danger? If you lived on the outskirts of Ferguson but worked in a place where you had to travel around through or near the riots just to get to work, and guys, I'm going to tell you, those of you that are self-employed and all, for this scenario, it's not an option. Put yourself back at a time when if you didn't go to work, it was a big problem. You really have to... Like get to the point where I'm really afraid for my life before I don't go to work. And you're wondering if you don't go to work for a couple weeks because you don't have your snow fund, your 14-day snow fund yet, that that it could be really hard to pay the bills. There are people that are in that scenario. So I want you, even if you've gotten yourself out of that scenario, because you never know what might make you have to go and, and be close to a situation you'd like to avoid. How would you set it up? And what would be your point where you'd say, if this occurs, then we don't go there. How would you set protocols and procedures up with your spouse for communications, checkpoints, check-in times, and things like that, so that you would know that everybody's okay, so that you can focus on what you need to do? It's an interesting scenario because it's a realistic scenario. And in a later segment today, you'll hear why it's quite possible that it's one we're going to have to deal with more and more if certain things aren't done. And I don't think it's going to get done. I'd like to see it done, but I don't think it's going to get done. Anyway, before I bring Jesse Tegmeyer on to talk about our internship opportunities and, other, uh, and the other cool stuff that's going on at the Ethos Farm, I wanted to talk to you about sanity and goodwill for the holiday season. Just a, a public service announcement from Jack. I'm seeing the memes start again, guys. And, and, and most of it's you guys that listen to me, because you're the guys that I follow on Facebook or follow me or we're friends or whatever. And so I know it's coming from you from the audience. I know it's not all of you, but it's coming from me. This This crap about... It's, it's Merry Christmas, it's not Happy Holidays. Listen, you know, if you believe that everything that anybody does that's not exactly the way you do it is an attack on you, your belief system, your religion, your faith, your culture, whatever, then you will see it everywhere even when it's not there, okay? It hasn't happened to me this year yet, but I was in some type of verbal exchange with somebody last year, and I said Happy Holidays, And this woman's face turned into, like, complete loathing hatred. And she said, I say Merry Christmas. And everything in my being wanted to say, well, Merry effing Christmas and say the word effing the full word. And I didn't. I just sighed and walked away. If I say Happy Holidays to you, it doesn't mean I don't believe in Christmas or I don't like Christmas or I'm saying it because I don't want to say Christmas. Do you know what it means for me? I love this time of year. I love this time of year. I feel like we just, it's like the playoffs for me, right? It's like this whole wind down to the end of the year. And it just started with Thanksgiving. It's like the kickoff of the first game of the playoffs. And we have a family holiday party where I get my whole family together and we do it before Christmas so there's no tension about who's going to go to whose house. We have a great big party and everybody has a time together and that's part of the holidays for me. And then there's Christmas week and there's Christmas Eve and there's Christmas day and the kids get their presents. And then we have this shutdown period in our lives and we kind of assess our whole year and think about what's going on and we have New Year's and we celebrate the end of the year and the beginning of a new year, the tick-tock of the clock that spurs us to do great. So I, when I say happy holidays, I mean all of that, including Christmas. And most people that say that do too. Please get a clue on this. Please, I'm serious, get a clue on this. When a store has their employees say happy holidays, what they're actually doing isn't taking a war on your faith. They're recognizing that other people have other beliefs and honoring someone else's belief ...is not attacking yours. So even if it's done for that reason... ...but here's a little clue for you... ...most people say whatever's on their mind. Most people are not told... ...you have to say this, or you have to say that... ...and they're just being nice to you... ...and they're wishing you well... ...and when somebody wishes you well... ...wish them well back... ...and if you would have done it different yourself then wish them well back the other way. But don't be an ass about it. Don't be a jerk about it. And if I say Happy Hanukkah to you, you should be happy that I said Happy Hanukkah to you. I probably won't. It's not my holiday. It's not my faith. But it doesn't disturb me when somebody else says it. I don't care if it's Kwanda. I don't care if it's Merry Yuletide. Happy freaking New Year. It doesn't matter. When one human being wishes you well, take it for what it is. A fellow human being on planet Earth... Wishing you well. And if you can't do that, let me tell you where the problem is. I'll tell you how to find the problem right now. Get up from wherever you are. Pause this recording when you do so you can come back and hear the rest of what I have to say today. Go find the nearest mirror and look in that mirror. There's your problem. It's not the well-meaning person that said happy holidays because that's what they say. It's not the Walmart executive that thought, well, maybe we could be more inclusive of all our customers. What a horrible thing for a company to do. It's not any of that. It's not any of that. Okay, have you come back from the mirror yet if you're one of these people that's all twisted about it? Okay, anyway, there's another thing I want to talk about. Boycotting Walmart on Black Friday. (laughs) Here's my question, okay? Uh, The reason they did that is because Walmart workers had to work on Thanksgiving. How many of you watched football on Thanksgiving? Did you boycott the NFL? Because, boy, they have a lot of people. Well, they're all rich players, Jack. No, no, what about what about beer gu- beer can guy, right? Popcorn guy, right? Peanut guy, right? All those guys in the stands. What about all the people with cameras? What about the security guards? How many people had to work to televise three NFL games on Thursday, right? Did you boycott the news? I mean, I think there's a you know case to boycott the news, but how many news people had to work? How many people... In that industry, had to work because of that. Did you, did you, if if somebody got hurt, did you boycott the hospitals? Huh? Did you boycott the hospitals because they were open on Thanksgiving and people had to work? This, see, this is where we start to lose our minds. Please, during this holiday season, be conscious of something the dichotomy. The dichotomy is at play. Remember, it's not a simple dichotomy. It is a dichotomy that will be used to divide you from your fellow man everywhere that everybody that wants to control you can drive a wedge. If I don't say Merry Christmas, I must be one of those evil people that hate Christmas. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. And I might say Merry Christmas to you, and I might say Happy Holidays to the next person. However the mood suits me, it's not anything bad, okay? And the, the the Walmart thing. Let me tell you what to do if you're a Walmart employee and you're not happy with how much money you make, okay, or what days you have to work. Increase your marketability and go work for one of the stores that you point to as an example. I see. Well, Costco does this, and Costco. That. Then go work there. Well, they won't hire me. There's a reason. There's a reason. So I don't care if you boycott Walmart. Doesn't bother me at all. But I'll tell you what, the low-paid worker who actually gets a job there, the last thing they need is bad numbers from Walmart that would get them laid off. Because most people that work at Walmart work there because at least they have a job. Just saying, please keep these things in mind. As more and more hoopla and crap is heaped upon you by everything from mass media to eccentric preachers and everything else in between, we are all human beings that inhabit planet Earth together, and we should all try to get along. There's many ways that they're trying to make sure that we don't get along. The way you get over on them isn't by following whichever piece of the dichotomy they want you to follow. It's by ignoring it and accepting your fellow man as just that, your fellow man. That's my holiday message to you. Kicking off the holiday season, and I will say to you, Happy Holidays from Jack Spirko. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Thanksgiving, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Yule, and every other thing that I could wish you this time of year for good. And if any of it offends you, well, again, go find a mirror. The problem lies with you. Anyway, with that, let us bring on one of my dear friends, Jesse Tegmeyer from Perma Ethos Farm. Elijah Springs Farm, actually, from Perma Ethos. In West Virginia, Jesse, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, for folks that are not familiar with you, before we get into some of the reasons that you're here today, tell people exactly who you are and uh, what you're up to right now, because you, you, you're kind of busier than a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest, <laughs> and it's my fault.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad that you uh, put me in this position, Jack. So my name is Jesse Tegmeyer. Uh, I was tenant farmer here at Elisha Spring Farm this year uh, with Permiethos, our, our flagship farm. And, uh, so just kind of bringing the season to a close here and, uh, recently sent every, most everybody else off the farm as we kind of slow down for the winter. And I'm making plans now for the spring. And, uh, so our 2015 season, I'll be running the show, uh, Been calling myself the uh, the farm manager, and uh, looking at uh, bringing on a couple more people uh, similar to what we did this past year, but maybe a little different format. Um,
0: Yeah, definitely. And you kind of you're an example of someone we brought in, and you've kind of moved up and and taken over this farm now. We're trying to create that progression for people. Um, Before we tell people about the opportunities there, can you kind of talk about some of what we learned this year? With, with animal management and some of the plans you have for next year as far as numbers and things like that. Okay, sure. So, uh,
1: we started out with uh, a small flock of, uh, layer hens and, uh, learned that, uh, we need to put them in some kind of enclosure because, uh, they're all over the homestead. So we start pasture them behind the cows. And uh, we, we learned a lot about cows. We've got one milking cow right now, and my wife, Judy, has been milking her. She learned a lot from Mike Bertres before he moved on. And uh, we're just about to get to the stage of making cheese and butter and stuff as production comes up. Um, we got three young calves that uh, we're raising up, and we're not sure where we're going to go with those yet. They could be dairy or raisin beef and uh so next year for them is just milk production cheese butter we've got currently 17 hogs um, nine american guinea hogs and uh eight pink pigs we call them uh, production pigs Um some i've learned a lot about the the guinea hogs are supposed to be really good on a homestead they kind of take care of themselves um, my former partner, Mike Vertrees, is running his on his farm now in Nashville, um, pretty much free range. And they're, they're great at that. Um, I've noticed here with very cold weather we've had, it's been uh, it was probably about 9 degrees last night. The think pigs, yeah. <laughs> I had to go build a, a quick makeshift shelter for them. We had planned on doing that in January and February, uh, not so much in November. So uh luckily, Kevin Keegan, one of the farm owners, was in. He helped me throw up a quick shelter. So that was one thing that we learned when we're pasturing our pigs. If we can, we'd like to get them done sooner and uh plan on inclement weather. But the pink pigs don't weather so well. The American guinea hogs, they've got 50% more fat on their bodies. They're pretty chubby little guys. And they weathered very well. The pink pigs were shivering and, and hence the shelter we built for. Uh we're ramping up uh next year the numbers we're planning on for the pastured pigs is a hundred. Um they're they're working out really well here. Something else we've learned, uh our land here in West Virginia is just perfect for raising hogs because it turns out there's a lot of natural nuts here. And so we're kind of looking at maybe moving that direction with our um planning uh permaculture wise.
0: Well, and what we learned this year right is that when cows eat lots of acorns, they tr- they're trying to kill themselves and right. they can do it and pigs eat acorns, they make wonderful pork. Yes. So so when you have lots of oak trees around, pigs are easier to deal with than cattle. Absolutely yeah and we we did, that's like we we're learning as we go here, folks. We didn't know that I mean Jesse sent out an email to all of the the owners that said like the cow is acorn poisoning, and I was like, Holy crap, I didn't know cows could <laughs> get, get acorn poisoning, but apparently they can yeah. um and so we're we're going higher on the higher on the hog, so to speak um with uh with the twenty fifteen plan uh and we're we're talking about doing like two runs of fifty right to kind of spread the production out a bit, correct, yes. And then on the pastured poultry, you guys have learned a lot about that. You guys kind of had a baptism of fire with that. You ran a, you know, we say a small test run, but it was a lot of birds. Yeah. Uh, a lot more than I've ever done myself. I've done 50, 60, and that's a lot. You guys did what?
1: We did, uh, we started with 180, uh slaughtered uh, 173. So we were really happy with the end numbers. That's a really good survival rate, uh, especially for the first run with the system. Um what did we learn with those guys? Uh, Cornish cross are great. I don't care what anybody says.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they can grow to be uh, 10 pounds was our biggest uh, butchered weight. If you want to extend them a little bit, I had zero heart attacks, a couple leg development issues. But the nice thing about those, we were able to go ahead and, and process them so that we didn't lose the bird. Um, it was a great run. We really like the uh, chicken tractors that we use, uh Darby Simpson style. We're going to try some also Joel Salden style next year. Um, a very successful run of chickens.
0: Well, and the thing was with running the, the pigs and the chickens in these small tests, we now have... production cost numbers that are fixed. We know know, it could go a little higher, a little lower, but in the end we know the average cost of production of a chicken at eight weeks or a chicken at 10 weeks if we want to put the extra weight on them. So we can now do market analysis planning and we can come up with a a forecast of how many we're going to run next year. We know our budgets. and, And I think people would say, well, can't you just get that from somebody else? I don't think you can, because every place you run a chicken, every place you run a pig, your feed input costs and, and your resource acquisition costs are going to be different. So we now know that for the farm. And then you were able to gain the experience because up until last year, you know, you were fixing air, aircraft for the Marines. Correct. Right. Yeah. So this is like your first year raising pigs and chickens.
1: Yeah. Well, I've done a small-scale homestead,
0: uh, whatever I could
1: do in a, in a rental house.
0: <laughs> yeah. I
1: couldn't have uh, – 17 pigs
0: in a row house so but 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 i think 17 pigs makes you able to take care of 50 next year it makes Absolutely. You, yeah well, well, i can't remember now off the top of my head when we sat down and worked up your numbers for next year but what's the plan on chickens next year well uh
1: we had planned on a bunch but uh to stay within uh legal limits of west virginia we got to cap it at a thousand chickens okay yeah
0: that's what we could self-process
1: Right, right. Well, as a matter of fact, we could, uh, put a whole lot more in the freezer for, for us to eat here.
0: A lot of chicken. Yep. lot <laughs> like chicken. You feed a lot of woofers on a thousand chickens, but, but we can do a thousand for production for, for the market until we, we do some other things. But so next year, our plan then, folks, is that we are trying to establish local markets and once we can do that then we can look at things like putting in uh the equipment necessary to get usda inspection and be able to do more but uh with all of this work you're going to need some help right so we've got we've kind of you we kind of let you figure out how you wanted to do it you took some time you read joel salton's books you went up and saw his place um and you kind of have a format now for how you want to develop, like, the next next pool of talent. You want to talk about what's available to people and, and what they need to do if they want to come work with you next year.
1: Sure. Yeah, so we're going to be running interns this coming year. And uh, so we've got four slots. One is going to be – or two slots, rather, is going to be from March 14th to June 27th, and the other is June 20th to October 14th. So for a total of four slots, uh, you can find details on that, uh, permaethos.com. Uh, click on join us and there's an internship box that you can click. Uh, you find a whole lot more details there, but just to give you a quick rundown, uh, there will be a, a stipend. Uh, there will be some pay involved. It'll be here, here on Elisha Springs in West Virginia. Um, we'll be working about Five and a half days a week. Sometimes we work long days, but we try to, uh, not kill anybody around here. <laughs> and, uh, you'll be learning everything that, uh, we do here on the farm as far as all the livestock. And, uh, then of course you'll have access to our network, which, which is awesome. This is something more that we can offer, which our network that maybe some other farms can't. Uh, with all the talent we have uh, back in PermaEthos.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think that you know, if people have thought, you know, I'd like a, I'd like some kind of a business of my own in permaculture. That getting into an internship like this and 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 working through it uh, may very well lead you to some sort of an element partnership with us, which is where we help you establish your own business. And uh, we'd much rather do that with a known than an unknown. And uh so this is a good way into that as well. And I think a lot of times people think, well, what could I do? What could I do? And I think if a person goes through an internship with you, it's more of which one of these many things that I could do do I want to do? Like the exposure that you gain from working on a real farm and seeing what's really being done and, and learning how things really work and getting an understanding of the numbers, the market, and, and the work. Because I think some people don't get how much work it really is. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's probably more fun than trying to figure out where that one piece goes back in the helicopter.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> Very
1: easily, much more fun. This is the best job I've ever had in my life. Don't tell my employers because it would be hard when I ask for a raise. They'll just say no and I'll, I'll go
0: back to work. <laughs> the problem for you is you just did that yourself, but... uh <laughs> We've got, we've got a lot of stuff going on up there. I know you're really busy and I'm going to pull you out in the middle of a day and it is a lower activity time of year, but it's also the time of year where you have the least amount of help. So I'll let you get back to your stuff there. Anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, just a couple
0: of things, a couple
1: more exciting things coming on next year. Uh, we found a USDA processor, which is huge because now we can process our meats and send them outside the state. And, oh, that's great. Yeah, they were really hard to find, actually. So that's that's big news. And uh, we're looking at, I'll be talking with you in the near future, about maybe uh, bringing organic feeds to the area. We can't oh. find them. We've had to be, unfortunately, using uh, standard feeds up until now. And we said next year we won't do it. We're going to find a way. And it looks to me like that way is to become a reseller for organic feed in our area.
0: Yeah. which we'd probably have a great market for because I know there's a lot of people in the area in the same type of business that we're in, and they would love to feed their animals a uh, higher quality feed, but uh, you use what you have, and and that's what it comes down to. And on that note, let me say, the chicken we produced this year, was it, was it not amazing, Jesse? Uh, simply amazing. It? Yeah. Yeah. it just doesn't compare to the store, of course. But it would be better if we could get that organic in there, and that would be a great way that we could – not just do better for ourselves and our production, but help serve our community. And that's a big thing, you guys. You want to talk maybe just a little bit about, you guys have really, you know, for a bunch of out-of-towners in Appalachia, which <laughs> usually takes a while to gain acceptance, you guys have really become part of that community pretty fast. Yeah, we have. uh
1: We've got just... Awesome community here. That's one of the things I love most about this place. In in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, some really awesome people. Uh, we got some great neighbors. I don't know. I guess I won't put all their names out there. Uh, But they've helped us. They're farmers. They've been farming for many years. Um, They're intertwined in the community. Um, When when I have questions, I go and I ask these guys, and they help me out. When we didn't know what was wrong with the cow, they helped me out. Um, We found these old grizzled farmers to ask these questions of when my 20 years of Marine Corps leadership uh, doesn't tell me what's wrong with the cow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think a big part, this is for other people that are trying to get things started and moving into rural areas, as to why you guys have been accepted is instead of coming there and going, help us, you guys walked in there and started helping other people. You made sure that – You know, you did a certain amount of business with the local store instead of always going into, into, uh, into, you know, Charleston to buy stuff. And, you know, you guys are getting manure from one of the local farmers, but you're also taking it away so he doesn't have to deal with it. And you're, you're helping them in any way that you can in addition to what you're, you know, you're gaining from them. And I think that's really made you guys just well accepted by a place where generally acceptance isn't just handed out. Um, And and that's awesome, and I think that that can be emulated anywhere because I think when people show up and say we're here to be part of things rather than we're here, uh, what can we get? Uh, It's universally receptive. Yeah, absolutely. That really
1: helped us a lot.
0: Yeah, and again, thank you for all the work you've done, Jesse, and and we'll talk about that race. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jack, thanks. All right, folks, and, uh, with that, uh, we're going to let Jesse get back to his uh, business up there on the farm, and we'll continue on to other things today. So with that done, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that last week when I did the um, uh, the uh, holiday show uh, for Thanksgiving, and I talked about all the things I was thankful for, and I mentioned Permethos and all the wonderful things that have happened because of that, uh, I, I don't think I said something that I, I'm thinking right now. Uh, I am very thankful uh, the, to know Jesse Tegmeyer. He is one of the most solid human beings that I've ever known in my life. Um, he has done amazing things and come very far, very fast in half a year, uh, going from being a guy that worked on aircraft in the Marine Corps to a guy running a farm mostly based on poultry and uh, pork. And he has done amazing things. He has an amazing family, and we are extremely blessed that he's part of our lives. And if you'd like to, to work with Jesse... Uh, and to maybe follow his path, which is getting very cool, very fast now. Uh, it took a while to ramp up, but things are starting to really, really swing up there. Get over to permaethos.com, click on Join Us, and uh, fill out an application, and he'll be in touch with you. With that, let us go into a completely different topic. Uh, I want to talk to you guys about Ferguson, Missouri, and my thoughts on it now that I've heard the grand jury testimony and have been presented with the preponderance of the evidence that's available to the public at this point. This is what I believe happened. Michael Brown was a thug. I don't care how angry you are at the police. Please let that go. Put it on the shelf for just a minute. What you have to do to judge this, and we're going to talk about law enforcement's role and what they have to do to prevent more of these and why I don't think they'll do it and why I think they get a lot of blame here. Okay. But let's just take all the anger at all the cops abusing all the citizens you've ever seen and let's put that on the shelf and let's judge this individual thing as it occurred as an individual thing versus part of a whole. Okay. The guy goes into a store. He steals. The guy tells him not to steal. He tells the guy to screw off. And basically threatens to beat his ass if he does anything. He walks down the street. The call comes in that somebody just committed shoplifting. The cop comes by, sees the guy, cuts him off with his car, and he doesn't actually want to apprehend him yet. He wants to wait for backup because he knows he's in a bad area. The guy tries to leave. Cuts him off with the car and says, hey, I need you to get up on the sidewalk. He's trying to buy himself 30 seconds. The guy that he's trying to talk to comes up to the car and starts a fight with him through the window of the car. Okay? He gets shot in like the thumb or the fingertip during this struggle, which means he's trying to get the guy's gun while he's beating on him through the car window. He takes off after he gets shot in the finger. He's he's pursued by the officer who now considers him a legitimate threat. Wouldn't you? I mean wouldn't you consider him a legitimate threat to others? He stops, he charges the cop, he gets shot, he ends up dead. There's a lot more details than that, but that's the gist of it. And the witnesses whose testimony was in line with all the forensic evidence corroborated that. And those that think it's a racial thing, all of them were African American. And they are now afraid for their own lives because they told the truth. This is what happened. So why? Why riots over this? This guy was not a pillar to the community. He really wasn't. This guy was not a nice guy. He wasn't a gentle giant, and all his shit from his parents. He didn't even live with his parents. They didn't take care of him. They didn't raise him, and they've gone after his grandmother, who is, has sold shirts in this guy's honor, okay? Because they feel that she, are entitled to the money, okay? This is this is the so why? Well, you know, it was a chance to lather this up, Jack. And a, well, wait, well, wait a minute. This happens. There's people killed all the time throughout throughout America. Black guys by white cops, white guys by black cops, white guys by white cops, black guys by black cops happens. There's issues, there's is, instances of abuse everywhere. Why this? Why this? Well, I think, one, the citizens of Ferguson, Missouri, have dealt with a lot of police corruption over the years. And it's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. It might have been an inoffensive straw in and of itself, but it's one more thing, and it was an excuse. And there's a very large group of opportunistic people that make up the lower rung, the lower 10% of society, that if this happens, they'll burn shit, they'll steal shit, and they'll say, oh, we're helping." you're not, you know, come on. But why does it work? Let me tell you what I believe. I can't prove this because I can't produce this, but I believe if somewhere had surfaced a video, that somebody had shot of this instance, of this whole thing happening, And if it matched every single thing the officer claimed, and do I believe 100% of his testimony? Not necessarily. I think some of the verbiage that he says he used, that witnesses say he used, they, they don't match, and it's probably the case that he did use far more aggressive verbiage. I don't care. That doesn't change the facts on the case. But if somebody had a video, and it happened exactly like this cop said, if every single thing, if somebody had followed Michael Brown with a video camera from the from the convenience store through the entire process, there would still have been riots, they still would have burnt cars, and they still would have said the cop murdered them. They would have never listened. They would have said it was a fake video or whatever. Why? Why? Because law enforcement hasn't cleaned up its own shit mess yet. That's why. I don't... See, this is where we can now take. Remember, I said take all your animosity toward law enforcement, the police, and the city, and the state, and everything, and put it on the shelf. We can take it back off now. We can examine why is there such a visceral reaction? Why do people refuse to believe the facts? Oh, they're just a bunch of thugs. No, no, no. We have people all over this country, rational people, who generally think reasonably, rationally, that are that are doing nonsense. And I don't just mean the rioting. I just mean, like, Facebook tweets and stuff, the cops murdered this guy, whatever. And they will not look at the evidence. They refuse to. They just, God, we know what happened. No, you don't. That's why I said anybody that says they know what happened before they got the details is full of shit. You don't know, and you're acting like a fool. Why? Why? Because, and I'll tell you this, this goes out to everybody in this audience. as part of the law enforcement community. You have lost the trust of the people. You have lost the trust of the people. And it's not a smear campaign. You've done it to yourselves. Well, for every one bad cop, there's nine good cops. Okay, well, then the fact that the nine, out of, you, nine of you out of the ten haven't grabbed a guy that's a bad cop and kicked his ass behind the woodshed, if that's what's necessary to straighten the shit out, has done this. You're not trusted. And you can post all the memes you want from the law enforcement community. Don't tell your kids we'll arrest them. We want them to run to us, not from us. It ain't going to happen. It is not going to happen until the law enforcement community of this nation starts doing a couple things. One, admit where you're wrong. Don't call them bad apples. Don't call them knuckleheads. Call oath-breaking officers what they are, criminals. Treat them just like you would any other criminal. Arrest them. Prosecute them. Put them in prison where they belong because they violated the public trust and they violated the rights of a citizen where they were given greater trust and greater privilege than the average citizen has. Okay, so number one, call out the bad cops, treat them like criminals. That's what they are. Stop covering shit up. That's number one. Number two, admit that it's a problem. Actually, that should be step number one. Start out with step number one. Admit that there is a problem. Quit pretending there's not a problem. Okay, if you are an alcoholic and you want to quit drinking and you show up to uh, to you know Alcoholics Anonymous, what's the first thing they make you do? Admit that there's a problem. We cannot correct the problem if we won't confront the problem. So it's isolated. It's no bullshit. It's a big problem. It's nationwide. It happens all the time. From minor abuses to major abuses to the fact that we have had people murdered by police officers that should have never been engaged with force at all. So admit there's a problem. Number two, point out the problem, call out the criminals, and prosecute the criminals. Okay? Number three, apologize to the American people. The law enforcement community as a whole, through all of its agencies and organizations, needs to come out, not only admitting this problem, not only prosecuting those amongst yourselves who are doing these things, but an apology, a true apology. We are sorry we let things get out of hand. We are sorry we had to have enough oversight. We are going to take, and and then... The next one, present the plan of oversight. How will you ensure the compliance of your various officers and various agencies with the rights of the people? That's the next thing that's going to happen. And then this is the most important one. All of you from state law enforcement down, state troopers, highway patrol, whatever they call them in your, your city, down to local police departments and ordinances, all the shit that's coming down that the federal government wants you to do, you need to turn it back around and say, we don't do that. That's not what we do. Stop working with federal agencies except where it's legitimate. Okay? Stop taking your training from 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 federal agencies. You're not supposed to be federal. You're supposed to be city or state or county or whatever you are. Focus on your own damn community and stop paying attention to the bullshit being handed down about supposed hate groups and all this other crap. Get involved in your own community again. Start to know people. The next one, get rid of all arrest and arrest quotas, period. No quotas. No officer should be judged based on how many tickets they wrote or how many arrests that they made. They should be judged based on how well they did their job, which means if there are violations that are against public safety in their area and they have not responded correctly, then they should be judged ill for that. But to say, well, you should have arrested at least 20 people last week is bullshit. It's complete crap. All arrest quotas must go away. Don't tell me they don't. Remember, step one, admit there's a problem. All of you that say you don't have quotas are liars. You're liars. You're, you're standing on a technicality the way a defense attorney gets a guy off on a technicality. Well, we don't have an official quota. Yeah, but you tell me. You tell me, guys, that you're not sat down in front of your section chief or what have you and told shit like, well... You didn't write enough tickets last month. Well, I don't have a quota. Yeah, but, you know, we still... We have you out there doing traffic enforcement for a reason. We know there's more infractions than this. And how long does it take to really figure out what the number is where you won't hear that anymore? And is that not a de facto quota? All of it has to go away. Police of all types. You need to start acting like what you're supposed to be. Officers of the peace. And that starts from the individual police officer... All the way up to the police chief, or the county sheriff, or the head of the state troopers, or whatever. All of you have to make a consorted effort to do this. Or you will have more Fergusons. You'll have a lot more Fergusons. And it's going to be the same thing. It will almost always, the media will almost always, choose a place where, in the individual situation, you were right. Right. And no one will believe you. They will ignore the actual abuses that you commit. They will ignore those among you who really deserve to go to prison. They will point out an officer in defense of his own life or the defense of others in a tragic circumstance, and they will lather that. And the people will believe them because you have lost credibility. Because you do not admit there is a problem. You do not call those out amongst you who are criminals. You do not stand for the citizens. You stand for the department. You put your retirement ahead of your duty. And I I don't do it. Yeah, but enough of you do. How many bad cops? How many bad cops does it take to ruin all of your image? The answer is not many. Not many at all. Do you know why? Because that bad cop has other cops who will come help them do what he needs to do. That cop, there's a bad cop, has other cops that say they're good cops who will cover up what that shithead has done. That cop has other cops who will back him even when he's wrong. That cop has a gun, a taser, pepper spray, another gun, a car, handcuffs, and a badge that represents the authority of the state. That bad cop, you guys, I want want to put it in your language for you. Say there was a guy in your town, your city, your area of operation in law enforcement, and you knew that he was behind a tremendous amount of violent crime. Okay, He was causing it, he was instigating it, and he was doing it. So like your thug gang leader. okay, Would you not target him as a most wanted person to, to either apprehend, because you've already got charges filed against him, or to figure out through investigation how to file charges against him. He would become a very, very, very high priority. Okay, If you have a shithead cop, he should be a higher priority. Because he will take away, or she will take away, from your ability to do your job, because no one will talk to you, no one will trust you, and no one will work with you, and sooner or later you will see more cities burning, probably when the side of authority was actually right. And why? It's Better for the people that want to control our society that the rioters be wrong in the instance that they're rioting over. Rioting's always wrong, but to be wrong in the individual case, it's much better. It's much more polarizing. Could you imagine if what we found out about this is the cop really did shoot the guy in the back from his window, like some of the idiot witnesses said, that didn't even, that later admitted they never even saw what happened? Could you imagine how many Americans would have went to the side of those who were angry and enraged? That's no good if you want control. If you want control, you want division. You want a very clear division. You want it based on race. You want it based on income level. You want it based on politics. You want it based on religion. You want it based on something that's very clear of which line you're supposed to be on. So clear, in fact, that if you choose the wrong side, that your own throw you out. It's exactly what's going on in Ferguson. But law enforcement as a community, as a whole, you have dropped the ball. You have failed to communicate to people that they can trust you. You have shown time and time again that in many instances we cannot trust you. You have lied to people in an investigation and claimed not to have lied to them. I've been lied to directly by police myself. Please don't tell me you're sorry I had a bad experience. It wasn't that big a deal because I knew my rights and sent them on their way. But I was lied to. I trusted, and I shouldn't have. And I won't again until you show me why I should. And that, whether you like it or not, those of you in law enforcement, those that haven't raised my voice, I haven't gotten angry, I haven't snapped out on you, okay? I'm telling you, this is what the average American feels like today. I cannot trust you. You do abuse people. Not all of you. But when you see abuse, you don't do anything. And if your buddy happens to be having a bad day and kicks my head in, and you show up, all you're going to do is help put cuffs on me, take me to jail, and back up a story that I resisted. Okay? And as long as the people of this country feel that way, it will be very difficult for you to do your job, and you'll see more cities burn. If you don't want it happen, if you don't want it to happen, the change can't come from us. It cannot be initiated by the citizenry that has been the victim of the abuse. It can't. It, it can't occur with the people who do not have the power. Those of you in power, in this community, you need to be the change. Just saying. All right, let's move on to something. I'm probably pissing a lot of people off today. Let's see if I can keep it going, because we'll just talk about another hot-button issue right away today. Uh, Another big, explosive thing that I'm hearing about from people. Ah, the world is over! President Obama has granted amnesty to all the illegal... No, that's not what happened. This executive order... You know, it's very difficult. This is when you know the media wants to divide you. To actually find out what the president's executive order does takes a lot of Google-foo to get to a few places where you can actually get the bullet points. It does boom, 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 boom. That's hard to find. Do you know why? Because they don't want you to find it. They just want this. Everybody that's pro-amnesty... Yay! Everybody that's anti amnesty, boo! And they want the two groups at each other's throat. Just like Ferguson, Missouri. Are you tired of being played yet? Really? Because here's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to get angry with me, but I'm going to get, and I'm going to back it up. I have an article I was working on. It went out a bit early by accident, hit the wrong button in WordPress. Still needs a lot of wordsmithing and some facts behind it and stuff like that, reference points and things. Because I want this to be here. I want this to be here when the GOP sells you out. And I want you to be able to say, this guy said it was coming, and not have to have people listen to a whole podcast and all this other stuff. Be able to read one article and see, yep, it was plain as day. Because maybe it will wake people up. Here's the fact that you're not going to like. The President's executive order is largely meaningless. It's largely meaningless, 100% meaningless in the short term. And no, the reason that some of you are jumping to that it's meaningful in the long term isn't because it sets new precedent for the president's you know, executive order powers or something like that, because let me tell you something about that. We just recently had released a graphic that showed how much executive power different presidents have used, and like from 1900 through FDR and into Truman, the amount of executive orders blows away everybody recent. George Bush Sr., who was in term for one office for one term, has issued more executive orders and done more with executive uh, orders than Barack Obama has. Okay. Now I couch that with this. Usually at the end of a president's office term, the second term or when they're voted out, they have this flurry of executive orders. They, they issue right before they leave where there's no time to really challenge them because they're gone. Next guy's in charge. Hey, if you had a problem get your new guy to resend my orders or what have you, right? Pardons come out, things like that. So we, we could see a lot more, but It's not like this guy's using any more executive power uh, as far as a precedent to any other president. It just isn't. I know you want to believe that because the TV told you so, but it isn't. So how is it meaningless? Let's start out with what it says. Do you know? Most people upset about it or happy about it don't know what it says. Number one is that there's about 5 million illegal immigrants, based on our best guess, because we don't really know, um, that have lived here for five years and have children, and those children are citizens. It only applies to them. Okay? And they won't be deported. So if you've lived in the country for five years or more and you have an anchor baby, as the term is used, then you will not be deported. Okay? The next one is you can have a job without fear of deportation. Alright? Uh, you do have to tell the government where you are if you're one of these people and you want these protections. You can get a Social Security card so you can come out of the shadows and you can pay taxes, including SSI, but you will not qualify for Social Security benefits. You'll just have to pay in, and hopefully one day when you get real amnesty, you might qualify, right? But you're going to you have to pay your fair share of taxes. Um, you will not get access to welfare or the Affordable Care Act or any goodies like that, and you'll have to submit to a background check. Did you know you don't get welfare if you're one of these people? There's a loophole, and I already get welfare. We'll get that in a minute. So how is that all meaningless? Let's start out with number one. Over 5 million illegal immigrants won't be deported, and you'd have to have lived here five years and have children who are a citizen. We were never going to deport them anyway. We're never, ever, 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 infinity, ever, ever going to deport those people, ever. It's not fair. We should. I don't care what you think. All right, I actually do care what you think, but when it comes down to an analysis of the facts, we were never, ever, ever going to do it anyway. So it doesn't mean anything. The president could have come out and said, I have exec- issued an executive order that says we shall not, in the middle of the Mojave Desert, build a statue of Saddam Hussein. And further, we shall not encircle thy shrine statue of Hussein with all former presidents mooning it with you know statues of the mooning it. Right? There's actually people that might think, well, that would be kind of cool to do. That's a good idea. It's theoretically possible that we could, but it would be meaningless because everybody would go, well, we're not going to do Who the hell would do that? That's how you need to think about this. Um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan has a, a, a quote that that springs to life here. Everyone's entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. The fact is, we were never, ever, ever going to ever deport these people, ever, period. Next, they can hold a job without fear of deportation. It doesn't matter because they already do. We always hear about hard, hardworking immigrants, so why do we all think that they're just sitting around in their room you know, waiting for the government to say they can have a job, right? I know, for instance, there are illegal immigrants working for various city governments in the state of Texas. Doing jobs like trash collection, illegal, not supposed to be here, no social security number, how the hell do you work without a, I'll tell you in a second, doesn't give you a right to, but it gives you the ability to, okay, they have jobs, they do work, they're not afraid to hold a job, they don't care because they know, again, back to number one, we're never going to deport them, they have to tell the government where they are, that's the next one, Well, at least we'll know where they all are, uh, This assumes they haven't already done so. And it's ridiculous. But let me tell you this they have children that are citizens. Sooner or later that kid hits about five years of age and you know they have to go to this place called school. Of course they take advantage of our public education system and they have to register their kid at school. They have to sign them, you know, you sign a utility bill and everything. just from that alone we know where these people are. Right? We we, that's not why we can't find them. Over 70% are on some form of assistance. I'll talk about that in a second. But that means we know where they are. They can get a social security card. Here's the next one. So they can come out of the shadows and pay taxes. There are illegal immigrants who will take advantage of this. They'll get a social security card. But they don't need one to pay taxes. There's something called an ITIN. Have you ever heard of this? It's an individual taxpayer identification number. And many illegal aliens actually have one and pay taxes with it because then they can submit a tax return to do things like get credit and loans and open bank accounts. Yeah, because what the ITIN is is a way that you can be in the country illegally, make money illegally, and pay Caesar his taxes. They they made a card just for that, and they, do, they they will not come after you if you get one of these numbers and pay your and you can pay Social Security with it too. And many illegal immigrants do because they believe one day amnesty will come and they actually believe in Social Security. Believe it or not, there are illegal immigrants in Dallas, Fort Worth that own their own businesses and pay social security tax. I'm not saying most of them do. I'm saying some of them already do. If you want to do it, they have a whole way that you can do it, and it is all tracked, and no one shows up and takes you away. They won't get welfare or access to the Affordable Care Act, etc. Well, that sounds good. Do you notice they didn't tell you that? Nobody nobody on the right has probably said that. Here's the problem with it. <laughs> They're already getting this. When you look at reports, you see 60 to 70% of households headed by illegal immigrants receive some form of government assistance. And so you would say, well, then how does that work? The reality, it's paid to the children who are citizens. That's how they do it. That's how they get it. The kid qualifies for the food stamps. The the mother gets wicked because the kid qualifies for the benefit. Because the, ha- the family doesn't make enough money to be over a certain threshold. So all of it is actually, the, the, the parent is the custodian of the funds for the child. This doesn't change that. Because the, the kid's already a U.S. citizen. All right, And if you don't think that illegal aliens already get free health care, I invite you to go to Parkland Hospital in Dallas. I've seen lines up and down a hallway. Hundreds of people waiting for, and they're not paying, and with skin knees and uh, colds and whatever. Because they know they can go there and get free health care. They have to submit to a background check. Well, that's just political cover for Obama, folks. These people are not going to submit to a background check because they don't need to. What they're going to do is they're going to go on with their lives. And if something happens, they'll fall back. Oh, here's my background check, whatever. They're not going to do that. Why would you? If you want a Social Security card and a, a person that wants one will submit to a background check. And it's a small percentage of these 5 million people. But do you know what? Let me tell you something. You know who's not going to submit to a background check? Anybody we're looking for that did anything. The background check is meaningless. It's going to cost us money and it's not going to do anything. This doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. We're not going to deport people that we already weren't going to deport the people that we're going to de- we're going to deport now can pay taxes many of them already are they can't get welfare but they're already getting welfare they can't get free healthcare but they're already getting free healthcare we'll know where they are but we already know where they are ha- if you actually take your emotion out of this that's it that's the whole thing so why why it's cover fire it's cover fire I've heard from one person who saw the article, and this guy gets all in a wad, Jake. You know who you are uh, about this stuff, and just angry. And well, but they'll do this, and they'll do. It. But see, you can't logically argue that it alters anything because this big objection was what? What was your big objection, Jake? I'm talking to you right now. Right, hundred thousand people listening to us have a conversation. This is cool, but it will encourage more illegal aliens to come to America. That is a dumb objection. I'm sorry. They already come. And have you seen the pictures of them coming over the border? We should put in a fence. It doesn't matter. They'll dig under it. They'll go through it. They'll go over it. They'll cut it down. They don't care. They want to come here. And it doesn't apply to them. It doesn't. This doesn't apply to the person that shows up tomorrow. So what's the game plan? Ready, fire, move. Look, when I was in the Army, we learned how to lay down cover of fire. So if you and I were working together to advance on an objective, while you're moving, I am laying down fire at the objective. I'm doing two things. I'm providing you with some level of protection by keeping the enemy's head down so they can't shoot at you. But two, I'm actually drawing fire. The enemy now sees me as the threat, and it's going to focus their attention on me so I don't kill them, and so possibly they can kill me. They can now see where I'm shooting from. They can tell where the rounds are coming from. If nothing else, just by the impact. They know the guy's out there somewhere. Shoot out there. That gives you the ability to advance. And then once you're in position, in a defensive position, you start shooting. And I move. And we alternate until we advance. But We look like two separate individuals, but we're working as a team and we're advancing to the same objective. So what did Jack tell you two years ago the GOP would do to you on this amnesty issue? That they would sell you out. That when you said, we'll burn down the phone lines to the Capitol like we, it won't matter. They will sell you out. They're already going to sell you out. Mitt Romney just came out and said, the GOP should swallow hard, hold their nose, and pass an amnesty bill. They will sell you out. So how does this work? It works like this. This creates a great big catastrophe. For those of you that have been in the military, it creates a Charlie Foxtrot, right? You know what the real words are, of administration and paperwork, and what do we do with these people now, and how do we do this? And you know what, there'll be a big push for them to get the Social Security card, because that'll help. Look at this increase to the tax rates. This is great, right? Okay, so all this will happen, and your Republicans will take control. They might even do it before the election, but I doubt it. They want the White House bad. So a Republican president runs in 2016 about, secure. we finally need to secure our borders and clear up this mess that the former president made, and it'll all sound good. There'll be little inklings, and I'll be saying, they're going to sell you out. You'll say, no, Jack, they're not going to. We have to take our country back. Okay, yeah, they're both mafia families working for the same cartel. Okay, fine, it'll happen. And in comes the president. The Senate will still be in the power of the Republicans at that point, most likely. The House definitely will. And this is what you'll hear. We don't want to do this. We don't have any choice now. Everything's so messed up. Everything's so confused. Everything's so convoluted. There's no way to undo this. This former president made such a mess out of this. The only thing we can do is bring all these 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 people into the country as citizens, and Republicans will bring you amnesty 2.0, and all of these people will get amnesty, and here's where it gets better. They won't just do the 5 million people. They're going to do everybody. In one fell swoop, with a promise, we'll finally secure the border now, but we need to do this, because we have to do something. And some of you will still defend them, as not selling you out. Notice I haven't told you what I think we should do. I don't think it matters what I think about what we should do. I think what matters is what they're going to do. So all I've brought you is an analysis. So if you're angry with me for my analysis, understand my analysis is not my opinion. It's my my summation of the facts available and a historical track record of the people that run your country and the fact that everybody that's in power wins if they do this. The Republicans win because they will then say... We are the party of the Hispanic voter. We are the ones that actually fixed the broken system. Even though it will be completely broken, it will continue on, and we will do all of this again someday. And they will never secure the border, and they will never deport anybody unless they, the person is wanted for a felony in their own country. They won't even deport felons that are here that committed their felons here, felonies here, because they'll put them in our prisons. Right now you can go to prison after prison and find illegal aliens serving prison sentences in our prison and when they get out, most of them are not deported. They stay in our systems forever because a prisoner represents money to the establishment. Do you not understand how controlled you are? Do you not understand how pantomimed this all is? The President of the United States just set up a tee and put a great big ball on it for the next administration to use to give you That which you were told, they were fighting. And guess what? Just like healthcare, most of the people that have opposed it the whole time will say it was the best we could do, and they will accept it. A Democratic administration can't give you amnesty, but a Republican one can. Again, if you're angry with me for this, it is not my opinion that this is a good thing. It is not my opinion this is what we should do. It is simply my analysis of what's going to occur. Let's move on to another place where people are exerting control and one side, somebody will do something that they never could have done in another way. I want to talk to you really briefly today about the European bank banking crisis and what's going on in Europe and what's actually just happened. So the ECB or the European Central Bank has basically taken over the supervision of every bank in the EU. So, it would be like the Federal Reserve not just manipulating our currency, but actually taking over the oversight of your bank, including your small banks. 3600 banks, 18 countries, one system. Where am I getting that from? The European Central Bank website. You can go to banking supervision Dot europa dot eu and you'll see it right there. Let me read some of the things the little pictures they have here on November fourth two thousand and fourteen the ECB took over supervisory responsibilities for banks in the euro area. European banking supervision helps rebuild trust and bolsters the safety and soundness of the banking system. If I go to the next slide, it says again, this is in conspiracy theory. this is the European Central bank website. Looking at Angela Merkel smile, well, not really smile at me right now. On 4 November 2014, uh, sorry, it went backwards on me. Um, one step closer, European banking supervision is an important first step towards EU banking union. Together with single resolution mechanism, it will make the banking sector more transparent, unified, and safer. Okay? A healthy start to supervision. The successful conclusion of the comprehensive assessment paves the way for tough, fair, uh, and independent supervision. Results of the financial health check are factored into ongoing assessment of the euro area's biggest banks. So eventually it will become independent supervision. I mean, the, the oligarchs of Europe that run their equivalent to the Federal Reserve are taking over everything. But it's paving the way to giving it back. Okay, um, The most powerful financial force in Europe has the greatest control over the European Central Bank. Got it? Okay, Real, real simple. That's just the way it is. The people with the biggest checkbook exert the most control when you pull all the money together and decide how we're going to spend the money. And this one you don't have to get deep into to understand. There's all kinds of stuff you can go down a rabbit hole with, but all you have to do is look at what the ECB says that it's it's most concerned with. Weary lenders. Banks are choosing not to lend money, so we're going to force them to lend money. Very, very simple. Eliminate the negative. Well, the negative is all about the appearance. So people are afraid that the banks are going to fail, so we're just going to change the opinion of the people that the banks will fail. Stress relief. So some of these banks actually can't pay their bills, so we'll just push money around until we de-stress the bank. Outward bound. We need the banks to start pushing money back into the economy. We need to quell what they're calling an in-house revolt. In other words, some of the banks are saying, we don't want you to do this. All right? And the next big problem that the ECB needs to, to, to rein in with all of these banking systems that's actually stressing all these banks is how early and how long Europeans retire for. So they will bring in some level of what you call austerity, but they won't call it austerity. It'll be simply raising the retirement age, changing some of the rules about retirement. In other words, breaking their deal because it is a huge financial burden, but you can't call it austerity because it's politically incorrect. And you can't admit that the systems fail because it's the socialistic model for the rest of the world. So what you'll do is try to do it in a way that has very little impact over those currently in retirement, but really kicks the ass out of those that are awaiting retirement. They're going to make the banks lend, but in the end, the big thing is, who's the big kid on the block? Who is the big kid on the block? Who has the most financial power in Europe, in the EU? Remember... Great Britain, who said we should do this? <laughs> Still has a pound. Hey, hey, they backed this, they pushed for it, they made it happen, and then they went, yeah, that's right, you guys all go together and do that. Uh, we'll do the whole citizens can travel freely and stuff, but yeah, we're not economically tied to you people. We're not really part of the EU, but well, by now. Okay, so it's not England, right? So who is it? It's Germany. Remember what I said this would lead you to the conclusion that a nation would do what it could not do in other ways? Germany tried to control all of Europe with bombs and planes and war machines. And the better way to control is with money. When you're heading toward a system where the system itself and the people in charge of the system say it's a banking union, it's, it's unity, it's centralized control, it's 3,600 banks in 18 countries with one system, the person that controls that one system Controls those 1800 countries through the, those 18 countries through those 3600 banks. And any new bank that wants to show up has to join the Union. This is Germany taking financial control of the majority of the European continent. That's what's happening right now in Europe. And it's all being done with money. The empires, the conquests, the control in the world today has shifted from the use of what you call hard power, which is bombs and planes and military might, to what many call soft power, but this is generally considered diplomatic power. It's what I call medium power. Right? It's actually extremely hard power, but it doesn't look like it. But it's the financial control, and it's the political control, and it's the psychological control of people. And if you think, well, thank God we still live in America. Guys, did you listen to the rest of today's show? Did you hear what I had to tell you? They're controlling you the same way. They're just doing it with different issues right now. The reason it's important for us to look at this is we need to ask ourselves a question Will it work? And I mean, like in the next five to ten years will europe go into a deep depression or recession will the wheels just completely come off in europe far worse than they have in certain pockets right now europe wide or will this play this this gambit will it pay off economically i much again you have to separate your opinion from your analysis okay and we don't get to control europe trust me what the european union does And the European Central Bank, for the American citizen, way outside of your circle of influence. You don't get to decide shit, okay? You don't even get to decide shit about what your Federal Reserve does here, but at least you can make the case that you can think you do, okay? You don't get to decide anything about what's going on over there at all, right? So your opinion is meaningless. What you need to look at is, if it doesn't work, what does it mean for the United States? Right now, everybody's waiting for the stock market to slide into oblivion again. Ain't going to happen without a catastrophic thing, right? There has to be a thing. Remember the dot-com bust, right? Remember the Enron scandal and the book cooking that came out from multiple giant companies, Tyco and everything else, right? Remember the real estate bust, right? These were the things that precipitated the busting of a bubble, right? So if you look around the world right now, what is a great catechism that could occur? And that is a spiraling Europe. Could it drag us down? Oh, yeah. I don't think it will. I think this will work financially. Again, Jack, you, this is, this is the rise of a new neo-Naziist, uh, economic Nazism or something. That's been there a long time. Okay? They'll never, they'll, they'll never admit it because they, you know, there's no place where it's wronger to say the word Nazi than Germany, right? You can go to jail, I think, in some places for saying certain things that would lead someone to believe that you're proposing that it's going on or supporting the return of it or something like that, right? So much for free speech. But it's not my, opi- it's not about my opinion about whether, because you guys know me. I'm a minarchist to the point of almost being an anarchist. I don't think any of this shit should happen. But as a realist, I have to examine what's going to happen. This is what I think will happen. They will print enough money to bring stability to most places and to convince the rest of the world, well, if you buy an Italian bond, the Italians are probably going to pay you back. They might pay you back a little bit slower, but they'll give you a bit more interest rate. And I'll tell the Italians, like they've been saying, you're going to do what we tell you to do to get the money. And we're gonna we're gonna basically back your your, your repayment by making you repay it because you're in our system and if we have to we'll put the money in your bank to repay your loan and you'll owe it back to us who created it out of thin air in the first place and that's their own version of printing money in Europe versus the way we do it here. See, we cut the bank in on the deal here. There were they're, they're extorting the bank and forcing the bank into the deal. But if it fails. This is, because this is, I keep getting questions about the economy. When's it going to tank again? When's it going to tank again? Keep an eye on this. If you start seeing warning signs that this gambit isn't going to work, it's time to get conservative and bring your boat back to the dock, put the bumpers out, and tie it up to shore. That's a way of saying move toward the cash balance side on your investments. As long as this stays stable and nothing else blows up anywhere else, this is the one you can see. So, Be careful, be careful, because it could be the pretty girl dancing around while the magician's getting ready to pull an ugly-ass rabbit out of the hat. So we got to stay attuned to other things that are going on. Somebody sent me an email today, well, what about oil prices going down? Isn't that what happened when the economy crashed last time? No, oil prices went sky high, helped to crash the economy, and when economic output dropped and people cut back, oil prices went down with it. They weren't the cause, they were part of the effect. So the fact that oil's coming down is actually very good for the economy. We are an energy-based economy. We run on energy. Cheaper energy, better economy in numbers. Remember, analysis versus opinion is what I'm all on today. And my analysis is, if this even appears to work, it spurs the global economy, which the U.S. is deeply tied to. So short-term, I'm bullish on investing, with the caveat Always have an exit strategy, always have an exit strategy, and then have another exit strategy, and then have yet another exit strategy. If you're, if you're doing well in investment, chase it with a stop loss. If you don't know what that is, you probably shouldn't be managing your own money. Alright, let's go on to another one here today. So I basically said schools are gonna go obsolete, and here's the school, uh, system in a nation trying to remain relevant with what is probably in essence mostly a good decision um, Finland dumps handwriting in favor of typing this is from iProgrammer uh, it's by Janet Swift. It seems incredible that the 21st century schools are still teaching children to scratch marks on paper. Well, in Finland, they are taking a step in the direction of the future by giving up teaching handwriting. Of course, there's no way to know if this transition will be implemented in the best way. The Savon Sanamont newspaper reports from autumn of 2016, cursive handwriting will no longer be compulsory part of the school curriculum and said the schools will teach keyboarding skills and texting. The idea of teaching proper keyboard skills to children is unquestionably a great idea. See weak typing and lost art of the keyboard for more. The idea of texting is a little more dubious and may and many will mourn the loss of traditional skill like cursive writing. Um, and there's a, a whole article I'll, I'll link to so you can read today. But um, here's my thoughts on this. On some levels, good riddance. I don't think we should ever go to a point where people don't know basic handwriting. And I, I don't know that we should do away with cursive, like basic proficiency. But do we really need two forms of writing? Is print or cursive the way to go? And the truth is, and some of you that have beautiful, elegant, flowing handwriting won't understand this, cursive writing is artistic. Artistic, not autistic, artistic. And all those flowing, beautiful letters you make people like me that can barely draw a straight line, our writing looks like crap, this is always going to look like crap, and will always look like crap. And as far as, like, will they learn to read the letters? Well, you can play with fonts and Word and, and see cursive and all different types of prints. So a, that's what an A looks like in cursive. Uh, kids learn fast on computers. They really do. I do think that some level of being able to write is too valuable of a skill not to have. So some sort of writing and basically knowing your letters and stuff, and I think that's great. I also think, and there's a lot in this article about this, that it is important if we're going to go to keyboarding and teaching kids to use a keyboard, that they learn to use a keyboard properly. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean what I think of as proper, which, you know, knowing your home keys, ASDFJKL, some calling right, uh, and, and that. But to be able to touch type, to be able to type without hunting and pecking, right, um, I think is a very valuable skill set. I'd love to see people coming out with new laid-out keyboards for people that want to try it. I don't know. Do whatever you want. I don't care. But I think that the ability to actually type quickly is going to be a far more valuable skill than the ability to write beautiful cursive language. That's what we should be teaching. And I I think that it largely teaches children. children learn to do this without being forced to learn to do this. And I'll, I'll liken it to this. I think we should work on teaching kids basic typing. And I, I think that that is your home keys and learning how to, you know, work the shift key and, and stuff like that. And if you want to watch the screen, that's one thing, but you shouldn't be watching the keyboard and give them a basic skill. Once they have it, let them go, they'll figure it out. And I'll tell you why they'll figure it out. Why I know that they'll figure it out. I took typing in high school. Yes, typing. Electric typewriter, but typing. When you make a mistake you had to use little white out little strips and go backwards and go over it and squish a letter in so you didn't have to redo the whole that archaic, crappy ass system. Typing. And I learned my home keys and we were graded based on not how fast we type, but how well like how much faster did you type compared to yourself quarter to quarter throughout the year to get to the end of the year and be reasonably proficient with typing. I was probably typing at around 38 to 40 words a minute when I got out of school, and I did it because I had to, and I sort of kind of wanted to. We were beginning to have computers. We were playing with computers. We were doing some stuff with writing our own little programs and stuff with Commodores and stuff like that when I was a kid, but in the end, keyboarding was something that I didn't really like. And then I went in the Army, and I'd never used a computer the entire time I was in the Army. And I got out of the Army, and I found one of my old 128Ds, and I played video games on it. And then I got a job, a special kind of job, where you did things called sales. And I had to write proposals for people, and I discovered this thing called the Internet that Al Gore invented, right? Yeah, sarcasm there. Anyway, so I started learning about things like chat boards and started having communications with people on on chat boards, and not the old-school chat boards from when I was a kid where you dialed in, you left one message, like these threads that were dynamic and going on in blogs and comments, and I just started using a computer every day. And right now I type about 90 words a minute. Do you know why? Because I do it all the time. That's where our kids could be if we would just teach them that from from birth. Not from birth, but from from a very early age. By the time they know their letters and they can make basic words like C-Spot Run, we should have them typing it. And we should teach them how to use a keyboard properly. Dare I say, I think we might even do well to make smaller keyboards for smaller hands, and somebody probably already does that. And let kids, as they grow, get into a bigger keyboard. Keyboards are cheap and i think you'll find that that is a more valuable skill. Now what i what i see bigger here though is an entire nation school system going, yeah, this tradition thing that we have to stick to. No, we're not going to do that because we realize now that we are largely becoming obsolete. I think this is just the first the first signs that the school systems are beginning to realize that they're obsolete. Like this is these little token things that they'll do to change, to show that they're different, that they they will never be able to adapt quick enough. You're going to see, again, this is one of my predictions you can mark down, over the next 10, 15 years, a radical shift to the way people have their children educated and largely a an exodus from public education, from compulsory education as you know it. And it will get to a point where when enough people are doing it, that there won't even be compulsory education anymore. There will be guaranteed education. They'll be like, if you can't figure out another way, we provide a public education system. I just don't think they're going to give all the tax money back that they're going to save. No, they'll spend it all. And whatever they don't spend on education, they'll spend on something else and say they need it now. But, yeah, I'm telling you, if you're the bottom 50% of school teachers, uh, unless you're going to become really good and go out and do it on your own, you're going to look at a lot of layoffs going on in the next 10 to 15 years in public education. It'll be initially met with this outcry of we have to save the public education system, right? We have to bail out public ed to make sure every child goes to college and all this other crap. But eventually, the people will stop being fooled by this one. Because unlike a lot of the dichotomy stuff, when you can actually see the results, it's hard to argue with. And kids learn better in an environment where they're self-directed. There's a little discipline applied. Like you have to work on something now. Right, You can't play video games right now, Johnny. You have to learn something. But you can learn anything you want. And I'll help you learn it. They work better that way. They learn better that way. And they cooperate better that way. And they teach each other that way. And they'll learn things faster than you can as an adult if we'll empower them to do so. We will make public education obsolete by improving education, by turning education over to where it really belongs. Education belongs in the hands of the learner This is just one sign that that's beginning to be understood. Again, beginning, not fully understood. With that, folks, we are reaching pretty much the end of today's episode. I threw a lot at you. I probably upset some of you again, though, once again, I mean, really, really understand the difference between my opinion of the way things should be and my analysis of the way things are and the way things are going to become. Well, those are just based on my observations, they're based on historical realities, they're based on current realities, and they're based on what I can uh, look at the future and say, based on all of these things lining up, this is where we're headed. And Hopefully people will be able to do that. But take to heart what might have upset some of you in my initial message about sanity during the holidays and not being upset when somebody says something to you like happy holidays. Because frankly, if I say that to you and it upsets you, I don't even want to talk to you again. I really don't. All I was doing was being nice. And not everybody shares your faith. And that's okay. That's what makes your faith a faith. If everyone believed as you did, it wouldn't be a faith. So think about that. But let's think about where we're headed and why we all need to be stronger individuals so that we can be stronger individuals within families and stronger families within communities to deal with the shifts that are coming to our world. Because right now is a good time to do that because this is December 1st. This is December 1st and as I say from time to time, tick tock. Time marches on, the clock ticks for us all. 2014. For all intents and purposes guys, it's gone this is like the end of a bicycle marathon when you get into december it's like this it's like a bicycle marathon you know which is 120 miles or something like whatever it is right but if, imagine the last leg of the bicycle marathon was 100% downhill you could just coast to the finish line that's what december's like for people there's all types of reasons to let go, and we should do some letting go, right? There's all types of ways that we can shut down certain parts of our, our, our lives and our energy and things like that. And regardless of whether we're coming down that hill, you know, geared down and getting as much energy as we can into that, those spokes and dr- you know just driving the pedals as hard as we can, tucked in, or whether we just sit on the bike and coast, unlike a real race, we all get to January 1st on the same day at the same time. There's no race. There's only what we get done with that time. This is how it works. It's, it's a sliding scale. That's how life works. You're either taking actions that are increasing your personal liberty and freedom, or you're not. And if you're not, then time and those in power are eroding it. And those actions are not always the things that you do. Many times they're the ways that you teach yourself to think, the things that you learn, the intellectual things that you develop, the philosophy that you develop, your ability to be a a, a person who can interact with people who disagree with you and still be productive with those people, to not be misled, to not choose a side, because there is no side. The way you're being divided the way you're being divided is not a division between good and evil. It's a division by those who mean evil, who mean to do evil. Look across the divide. Whatever your big divide is, whatever your place is, you're sure the other side is wrong, and look at the actual people on the other side. Not the ones held up by your side as extreme examples of the other side. Not the ones in a Facebook meme that are idiots. Not the, just the real people on the other side. They're probably people a lot like you, doing the best they can with what they have, trying to make it in this world. And they, are, they have been led to believe that you're the bad guy, and you've been led to believe that they're the bad guy. But none of it really makes any sense if you analyze it. Because neither one of you are in control. Neither one of you are the people that are actually setting the policies, that are actually spending the tax dollars. You're the ones paying them, and yet you blame each other. That's what they want. This is a time of year to really assess where you are in the world. That calendar thing is not just there so we know what days we work and which days we stay home. It's there to help us all understand something. I think one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself is a metaphorical, not a real one. It's a little bit too morbid, I think, if you do it for real. There's no way to know how many actually go in there. But what I call a metaphorical jar of marbles. Jar of marbles. Think about it this way. Let's say that you had a great big giant jar. It's bigger than a barrel, but clear so you could see into it. And in that jar were a whole bunch of marbles. Thousands and thousands of marbles. Because by some type of foresight, you knew the day you were going to die. And every day, as you got up, went out to live your life, you walked by that that big giant barrel, you took a marble out, throw it in the garbage. That day is gone. It's over. Now, Or you walked around with it in your pocket. You had to spend that marble that day. But at the end of the day, you throw it away. And every day that jar gets a little bit emptier and a little bit emptier. And at first, you know, you don't even really notice the level going down. One day when you reach in to grab the marble because it's become just a habit and you reach for the marble, you don't actually touch the marbles. You have to reach a little deeper into that barrel than you ever did before. That's a little strange. That's your life either being invested wisely or slipping away from you. Every minute that you spend worried that somebody wished you a happy holiday instead of saying a Merry Christmas is a waste of that marble. Every day that you spend angry at your fellow human being because the people in power told you you're supposed to be mad at them, you're wasting that marble. That day's marble Is not being put to good use. How do we put that marble to use? Teach your children. And don't worry about what I'm teaching mine. That's one way we can put the marble to use. Plant a tree. Plant a garden. Real ones and metaphorical ones. Learn something new. Challenge your beliefs. Challenge your convictions. If you're sure someone must be wrong investigate with the concept being they could be right. Can I prove the person I'm sure is wrong to be right? Even if you don't prove them to be right. Even if you simply confirm that you were right, that they were wrong. That is time well spent because the mind has been engaged at a higher level. It has acted out of logic and reason and assessment versus emotion. Why do you think we're so emotionally charged as a people? Why do you think people are emotional and angry and upset about every major issue out there? Because if I want to control you, I want you emotional. Learn to decouple the emotion from the reality. Learn to analyze the way that I try to demonstrate for you today. Where it doesn't matter what I think, it matters what is and what will be. And how it got that way and why it's that way. And what, if anything, I can do about it? And if I can't do anything about it directly, how I must respond to it to make sure that I do the best that I can for myself and my family? How do I adapt to a changing world versus how do I try to change the world? Because i gotta, I got to tell you the truth. In many ways, you're not going to change the world. But Jack, one person can change the world. Great. Let me tell you how you do that if you want to change the world. First thing you do is accept the fact that you're not going to change the world. You accept the fact that you only can change that which you control, and you don't control the person across the street, so you certainly don't control the person at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and you certainly don't control your governor, and you certainly don't control your congressman. You don't even control your brother or your brother-in-law. You only control yourself, and therefore, you're not going to change the world. You are only going to control your own life and be productive and do things that are good based on what you know and what you're trying to get done. And you go do those things. And the people that do that the most make the biggest impact on others. And eventually, those people change the world. And they don't change the world with force they change it with inspiration. It's very difficult to truly force someone to do something. And if you do, they'll do it just good enough so that you'll leave them alone, and as soon as your back's turned, they'll go do something else. It's actually dramatically easy to inspire someone to do something. You can see it with a child. Eat. Your kale. I don't want to. It's green. It tastes bad. You don't want this. This is for daddies and mommies that like to eat this. What is it? It's called kale. Maybe when you're older you can try it. It helps you grow big and strong like daddy. But you don't want it yet. You're not ready for it yet. I know you think that's manipulation. And it is. But it also shows inspiration. They want to do it. They want to try the kale, even if they spit it out and decide they don't like it, because you're doing it. And where we lose our understanding is we think that those little simple things don't scale up, that they don't apply. If you want people to be good parents, be a good parent. If you want people to be better teachers, be a better teacher. If you want people to respect law enforcement, be the best. If you're in law enforcement, be the best you can be. And be the example. Be the guy that makes me point you out and go, this guy's got it. That makes change. Don't try to be dramatic. Don't try to be seen. Just be. Sooner or later, you are seen. Because it's so rare in our world today that people really focus on that which they do have influence over. It's really rare that people really try to do the right thing as they see fit with no regard to what, what other people think about it. And people actually believe that's dangerous. If you're a good person following your heart, Following your conscience and accepting the fact that you only control this very tiny sphere around yourself and you only really control your own actions isn't dangerous, except to the people in power. Very dangerous to them. That's why so much effort is exerted to keep you from doing just that, to make you angry at 50% of the population. Actually, I'm sorry, to make you angry at about 40% of the population. And to make that 40% angry at you, that's the dichotomy. It splits us about 40-40 on any given issue. And then there's this little bubble of people, the 10%. Not the 10% scum, right? It's a different 10%. These are the 10% of people that basically say, I'm not doing this. I'm not participating in your little game. I've got my own life to live. And what we do is we call that 10% crazy. They're conspiracy theorists. They're nuts. They're preppers. Whatever. They're crazy. They just don't fit in. Let me tell you something, and I'm speaking as a representative of that 10%. We don't want to fit in. We don't want to fit in. Fitting in means capitulating to that which someone else has decided is your destiny. That's what fitting is. That's conformity. We're not looking to conform. And we're not looking, and this is the big difference, to make anyone conform to, our, to what we say you should do. We're simply looking to do what we do to prove our views, to prove our way of living, to prove our philosophies through example versus coercion. I challenge you to become one of us, if you are not already. I challenge you to realize where the edges of that circle of influence drift off into your circle of concern. And put the majority of your energy in the circle that actually makes things happen. And you'll find yourself working closer and closer and closer to home. Accept that you will not change the world. And you know what? You just might change the world. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.